Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Swinney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. Well, as President-elect Biden prepares to take the oath of office, much of the focus will be on his economic plan. To get a preview of what we might see, we welcome Gene Sperling. He's a former director of the National Economic Council under Presidents Clinton and Obama. Uh, He is now president of Sperling Economic Strategies based in Santa Monica, California. Gene, thanks so much for joining us here. Uh, A lot to unpack here as it relates to uh, the president-elect and his first 100 days, maybe even first 10 days, maybe even today in terms of his actions. From an economic perspective, what do you think – he and his administration need to get done quickly? Well, I think they've made a smart decision in that they are bifurcating their, uh, call it a 100-day plan or uh, economic start, which is to first focus on the economic relief needed for the crisis. So that means both getting you know huge amounts, up to $400 billion to ensure that we are able as a country to truly deal with the COVID crisis. And that includes the vaccine distribution, uh, uh, all of the testing, all of the things that we've been so weak uh, and weaker than other nations. in, And then also the funding that would go to uh, people who are hurting, people who are at risk of losing, uh, being evicted, uh, obviously, you know, some more general support, but really for people who need it in the taking the checks up to 2000. But they're saying, let's do that first. Let's do that relief package first. Let's get that done. Let's not hold up uh, that for more complex, longer term issues. So you'll see them move quickly and they're going to try to make it bipartisan. They're going to try to do what's called regular order, working with Republicans do something with 60 votes, but they know in, that they, in their back pocket, they have the ability through a process called reconciliation to pass this with just 50 Democratic votes. That won't be their goal, but that's a backup plan to make sure they get this part done fast while people are hurting and the economy needs it. Then they say, let's come back and do the build better jobs plan, the infrastructure, the green uh, climate jobs, the manufacturing, the enhancing care, uh, caregiving jobs across the country. They know that's going to take longer. It's going to be a little more complex. Uh, uh, so they're saying that's our that's that's phase two. And I think that both are important. One is about relief and emergency. The other is about more long term recovery, about speeding the speed in which we get back to long term uh, uh, and I mean, we get back to full employment. Remember, uh, we're still down nine and a half million jobs since the start of COVID. So we're still in a deep hole with a lot of risk still uh, out there for this recovery. And at this point, we have former President George W. Bush and his wife, Laura, arriving on the platform. Gene, I want to ask you, who will Joe Biden and team be targeting in terms of trying to get some of, you know, what they want done? I mean, for example, the $1.9 trillion stimulus, there's very few people who actually believe that it will be the full $1.9 trillion. But to get it up as much as possible, who are the power brokers they need to, to be to be targeting? Well, 
I, I think in the I, I think in the end of the day, uh, the most important thing is can they keep all of the Democrats together? Because again, if they have fifty votes, they get to use for a budget matters, which are kind of the major kind of spending issues. You can do it with reconciliation. Well, so who would be the Democrats that might be holdouts, Gene? I think, you you know, you'd want to make sure that the that the ones who are seen as the more moderate Democrats, you know, I think people will be looking a lot at Joe Manchin from West Virginia, uh, uh, Senator Sinema from Arizona, Senator Tester from Montana. They're going to want to say, where can what in this package can we get agreement on that goes all the way from uh, the most progressive members like Bernie Sanders to the more conservative members of the Democratic Party like Joe Manchin. But I think when they start, they're going to start with the view that a lot of Republicans are not are going to want to support the major money for vaccine distribution. You've had several Republicans support the uh, taking the checks to $2,000. It's going to be hard for lots of people to vote against extending long-term unemployment. So I think they're going to start with a fairly broad view, looking for where the Republicans, uh, uh, you know, can support them, that Biden can show he's doing bipartisan economic legislation. But in the end of the day, they know that ultimate backup card is having all 50 Democrats on board. And so, yes, I think they'll be looking for where their most progressive and most moderate members can find common ground. So, Gene, it's fairly clear that this pandemic and the economic disruption has just exposed yet again income inequality, wealth inequality in this country. And as President-elect Biden thinks about his economic plan, his fiscal stimulus plans, plural, how do you think, what's the best way to go about addressing some of these issues? Well, you know, you're absolutely right. I mean, uh, uh, I think it is fair to say that um, that the pandemic, uh, rather than create economic and racial disparities, has just exposed and accelerated them. And I think that will be very much on uh, his mind and will impact his policies. And remember, during the campaign, he talked about the K recovery, a recovery that might have an OK GDP number. But when you looked beneath it, you would find people who are more fortunate like myself, who've been able to continue to work and work from home, doing well. And you've heard Leo Brainerd at the Federal Reserve estimate that for lower income workers or those who can't just work from home, the unemployment rate is close to 20 percent, near depression levels. So I think he's going to be looking at that very closely. So number one, you've got to prevent downward falls. Uh, you know, recessions are tough, but if you lose your home, if you're evicted, if you don't have food on the table, I mean, that's that's offensive to our values. That causes long-term unemployment that many people don't yep. uh, recover from. So I think he's going to, you know, I think these policies will be very targeted to that. And I think when you see him do his jobs plan, there'll be a lot of focus on making sure you know, not just putting dollars out and hoping people, mm-hmm. you know, not worrying about who gets hired, but doing it in a way that is ensuring you're improving uh, not just home ownership, but closing that racial home ownership gap, which is a way of closing 
the racial wealth gap, making sure when you, you know, most presidents often have just an infrastructure plan. Uh, Biden's Build Back Better plan includes caregiving jobs. Those tend to be, and health workers, those tend to be often yeah. helping more women, helping more, more women of color. That's very important to him. Gene, who is the next Federal Reserve chair and, and uh, you know... <laughs> You know, uh, uh, that's going to, you know, that that's going to be the, you know, one of the fun parlor games among economic nerds across the uh, the globe. Uh, and I don't want to, I guess I, I have too many friends who are probably Go on. In running to, <laughs> we, we won't uh, hold it against you. <laughs> uh, you know, I, re- I really don't know. And I'm, I'm going to I'm I, I've worked enough with Joe Biden to not want to totally second, you know, try to front run mm. his choices. I think that I think there's no question that the fact that they won Georgia uh, and that they do control the Senate does give him more discretion to think about uh, picking somebody new, somebody who might be more his own person. But I'm guessing that even within the Biden administration, as they're scrambling to get their cabinet in and chosen and confirmed, I would bet that that decision has not been made. Yeah. Gene, 30 seconds. What's the greatest risk to this economy here? Markets, equity markets hitting all-time highs. But what's the risk out there? You know, doing too little. Doing too little under, uh, uh, you, you know, underestimating. You know, what ended up being the problem before, that you get, you get only get one bite at the apple. Things get worse. Uh, you can imagine uh, a new strain that's that's resistant to the new vaccine. When I came in in 2011 to be NEC director, we were looking at a strong economic year, and then you had the nuclear meltdown in Japan. Yep. You had the you had the uh, 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 Arab Spring. Things happen, and I think that's why what you heard from Yellen is the risks of going small are much greater than the risk of going big. And I think that is going to define what you see from this president economically in his first year. Gene Sperling, thank you so much for joining us today on everything that we know so far and uh, the parlor games in Washington, D.C. among economic circles and, uh, you know, who might actually be uh, filling out the different roles in D.C. over the coming couple of years. Gene Sperling, former director of the National Economic Council under Presidents Clinton and Obama and president of Sperling Economic Strategies joining us there. So, Paul, it is an auspicious day. It always is, only coming obviously once every four years. And uh, today we're going to see President-elect Joe Biden and Vice President-elect Kamala Harris sworn in. Yeah, it's going to be a, a very uh, unique day, a, a unique inauguration, Vani, with uh, what we're dealing with in terms of the pandemic and what happened a couple of weeks ago, but a day of celebration nonetheless. So let's hand it over now to our colleague, David Weston, who's going to continue for the next three hours with Balance of Power. Inauguration Day in our nation's capital. Stay tuned for live coverage of the inauguration of Joe Biden on a special edition of Bloomberg's Balance of Power with David Weston. Our wall-to-wall coverage starts at 11 a.m. Wall Street time on Bloomberg Radio and Television. Let's get a preview of what we might experience later today as the inauguration takes place. We welcome uh, Jeannie Shan Zeno, Bloomberg politics contributor, author of American Democracy in Crisis, also professor of political science at Iona College. Professor, thanks so much for joining us. Jeannie, what do you think we're going to hear from 
soon-to-be President Biden in his inaugural address. You know, what I'm expecting to hear is a theme of bipartisanship. This is somebody who has been in the Senate for much of his adult life. He understands that in order to get all of the bills he wants to get passed and address all of the challenges we're facing, he's going to need to work across the aisle. So I expect we're going to hear about bipartisanship, a reach across the aisle, a call for unity. That seems to be the buzzword of the day. Um, You know, so we've had historic inaugural addresses, obviously in the past, but I do think that it's going to be a stark contrast to what we heard in 2016 with the infamous carnage speech. I think Biden's tone is going to be completely different from his predecessor. Jeannie, how does Kamala Harris's role manifest? She has an opportunity right now that previous vice presidents haven't had. How will her and Biden define this new role? It's going to be so fascinating because, of course, Kamala Harris, a historic pick. She's the first woman. She is the first African-American Indian descent. Of course, also, she is likely to be the leading candidate for the presidency in 2024. Mm. We widely expect that Joe Biden, given his age at 78, is not going to be running again. Um, If that is the case, then Kamala Harris is going to be not just serving as vice president and helping the president through all of these challenges we're facing, but also herself gearing up for a 2024 run. And that is going to, I think, be fascinating. And I know you're both probably shocked that I'm talking about 2024 (laughs) today. But if we recall Donald Trump, I I think it was, Vani, the day of his inauguration or the day after he announced he was running in 2020. So, you know, it it is really, uh, you know, time to gear up for 2024. And Kamala Harris is going to be a leading contender, obviously, for that position. So, Jeannie, the first 100 days of any president's uh, term tend to be uh, very, very busy, where they have a lot of, they try to get a lot of uh, work done. What do you think this president can get done in the first 100 days? It's been fascinating. He's been talking about not just the 100-day marker, which we're so used to in the U.S., sort of this historic day, 100 days. He's been talking about 10 days. And what we expect is he is immediately, as early as today, going to be sp- sending to Congress a massive immigration bill. Um, that, I think, is going to be a sweeping proposal to provide citizenship for 11 million undocumented um, Amer- people living in the United States. We also expect in the first day, just this afternoon, he's going to sign a series of executive orders dealing with everything from the environment and climate, again to immigration, to the public health crisis, COVID, and to racial justice. So he has a lot on his plate, not just in the first 100 days, but in the first day, because he's expected to be in the Oval Office working as early as this afternoon. President Trump earlier this morning made some remarks to reporters and also obviously made some remarks on the podium before he left Joint Base Andrews. He said we will be back and he had told reporters hopefully it's not going to be a long goodbye. I'm curious as to what you think President Trump will try to do next, particularly given that among the pardons were Steve Bannon. We were expecting some that we didn't get and then we did get the Steve Bannon one. What was the significance of it? 
the significance in my mind is that exactly tied to this we will be back statement that he made. I think the president, uh, the, the President Trump expects that he or members of his family, his daughter, his daughter-in-law and his son, all looking at potential races in Florida and the south part of the United States, may rely on somebody like a Steve Bannon to be an advisor for potential runs for Congress and potentially if a President Trump, former President Trump, decides to run again. So I think you're absolutely right. I was also struck by his remarks in terms of how he took credit for what is going to happen in the Biden administration, saying that he laid the foundation for whatever good they're able to achieve with a lot of luck. So it was sort of the first time I've heard somebody take credit prior to his successor entering office. So I thought that was fascinating as well. Jeannie, realistically, what do you think... um, soon to be President Biden can get done legislatively. He has obviously a long track record in Congress, bipartisan uh, historical record. Can he bring reluctant Republicans and maybe even some Democrats over to his side to get meaningful legislation done? He's going to have to do that. And I want to be optimistic on this day of sort of celebration and say, yes, he can. As you mentioned, he's perfectly situated to do that, given his history in the Senate and of reaching across the aisle. I'm not so sure he's going to be able to get the bills that he wants passed in the way he wants. For instance, this almost $2 trillion stimulus bill. We're already hearing yesterday during the confirmation hearings pushback from Republicans on things like the $15 minimum wage, on the $1,400 calls by Marco Rubio, also a 2024 contender for a more piecemeal approach. So there is going to be pushback from Republicans. And I suspect in the case of COVID, immigration and the other bills infrastructure that he wants to get passed these are going to be watered down if you will i don't think we'll get a 1.9 trillion dollar i think we're going to be closer to a 1 trillion dollar bill at the end it's going to be a negotiation for sure cuz he needs not just the moderate republicans he needs to also maintain the democrats and i would say one thing to watch for are democrats or republicans who leave their party Jeannie, thank you. Jeannie will be contributing throughout the day, so do continue to listen and watch Jeannie Shan Zeno, Bloomberg Politics contributor, professor at Iona College and author of a new book, American Democracy in Crisis. This is Bloomberg. Well, we're just seeing continued gains here for U.S. equities with the Nasdaq up 1.7%. Now the S&P up more than 1% and the 10-year yield at 109.38. Let's bring in Bloomberg Cross Asset reporter Sarah Ponzak to give us an idea of what markets are really concentrating on today. It would seem that the dollar index is a little bit weaker relative to, for example, the Canadian dollar. But uh, other than that, it's all about equities, Sarah. It is all about equities today. And we see the Nasdaq at record highs. We see the S&P 500 at record highs. We also see the Russell 2000 at record highs. So from small caps to large caps, but really asserting itself in the markets today is the FANG trade once again. This after Netflix was the first of the group to report earnings yesterday after the bell and really just performing, you could say. We saw net new subscribers come in at 8.51 million. That not only beat Netflix's own forecast, but it also beat the expectations from analysts on Wall Street of 6.06 million. On top of that, they finally passed 200 million subscriber mark. At the same time, they said, Cash flow will now allow it to stop relying on debt to fuel growth. So we see Netflix this morning up almost 15 percent, trading at a new record high. And you see the other fang names just trading in tandem. You look at your best performers on a points basis, at least in the S&P 500. As we speak, that's Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, each up at least two and a half percent this morning.
Yeah, it's just uh, an extraordinary story last night with Netflix. I think the other big thing, Sarah, is the company said that, uh, you know, they're going to be free cash flow positive uh, pretty quickly, I think a little bit faster than the street expected. So kind of showing how that company's really matured and, and really kind of grown into its uh, its growth story. Oh, surely. And coming into this earnings season, a big question for the likes of Netflix, maybe Amazon, you think of other large technology companies that benefited all of 2020 and even benefited from the role out of, of COVID-19 and the play out and, and people forced to stay at home and work from home. The question really has been, we know that business was pulled forwards for them. We know that many people uh, bought Netflix subscriptions because they were stuck at home with nothing else to watch and, and, yep. and they needed to. We know that happened. And now the question is, what comes next for these businesses? And there's been this push and pull when we hear uh, investors talk about this rotation, not just from, from growth to value, but from uh, defensives to cyclical and the idea that we might see this shift into the reopening play from the stay-at-home trade. But it makes you think when you see these companies continue to deliver. Uh, growth companies, and this is also an argument that's made, it's, it's not as if they are going to just drift off and everyone's going to stop talking about them and they're no longer going to be strong companies like you pointed out. Netflix now going to be cash flow positive. I mean, these are strong companies and it makes you wonder if we can see this reopening trade, small caps continue to run, but in tandem uh, with big tech and, and streaming companies like Netflix that did very well in 2020. How much is the market reacting to Janet Yellen's testimony? Obviously, she is going to be the next Treasury Secretary. It's you know almost without a doubt that she'll be voted in by sort of all sides of Congress, um, and therefore, you know, will try to implement a lot of what Joe Biden has been enunciating—the 1.9 trillion dollars in stimulus and so on. How much is today's trade? off the back of that? Not too much. I mean, we've known that Janet Yellen was going to be Treasury Secretary for quite a while now. She's also a known entity on Wall Street. The expectation is that there really shouldn't be too many surprises here. Uh, she has been touting the $1.9 trillion stimulus package. On the back of that, we have seen inflation expectations pick up a tad. Currently, I'm looking at 10-year break-even inflation expectations holding around 2.12% or so. Now, there were some surprises yesterday. Uh, Max Gockman over Pacific Life Fund advisors actually reached out to me to say that what was surprising uh, within her testimony was her uh, discussion of, of tax hikes, uh, saying that it's not going to come immediately, but possibly we could see a change to the tax code as part of the infrastructure plan. So that maybe did take some investors off guard. But I wouldn't say uh, necessarily that the testimony that we are seeing from Janet Yellen is affecting stock prices or, or the bond market or the dollar today, for instance. I mean, she's a known entity on Wall Street, and we've known for quite a while now that she was the nominee as well. Fiscal stimulus, Sarah, um, you know, $1.9 trillion plan proposed, hearing some pushback that uh, it's not all going to get passed. What do you think the market's kind of discounting here about this uh, next round of stimulus? Right. So there has been some pushback, the idea that we might not see it all get passed or all get passed immediately. But we haven't seen any negative reaction to this pushback whatsoever in markets. I mean, you, you see benchmarks today trading at record highs. You see the 10-year not really moving all that much, but still holding above 1% and well above 1% now at 1.09% uh, and holding. So we're not 
seeing much reaction in the markets, and we, we've heard it many times, the idea that the market is forward-looking, and the expectation, it seems, is that even if, if it's not done immediately, it, it will get done eventually. And the market, no matter what, is just looking ahead and saying, we've got trillions of dollars worth of fiscal stimulus coming down the pipeline, uh, and clearly it, it, the market's like that. Sarah Ponzak, thank you so much. We appreciate that. Sarah Ponzak, cross-asset reporter for Bloomberg News, uh, giving us the thoughts on the markets. Again, Vani, uh, equity markets hitting all-time highs here uh, on this uh, bullish outlook, I think, for the economy in the near and intermediate term, given stimulus and given low interest rates. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's the same narrative that we've been yep. listening to, right? Uh, as long as we've known you know, that the, the election results were pretty... Uh, accepted, you know, and maybe not by everybody, but that 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 uh, none of the court proceedings, for example, was going yeah. to succeed. All time highs in the stock market. Let's see where the action is under the hood. And we do that with Bloomberg Stocks Editor Dave Wilson. Dave, what are you looking at today? Well, there's plenty to see. I mean, Netflix, a perfect example. You know, you go back and look at the stock's performance after past earnings reports, and you see it was down in seven of the past eight quarters. So it's a real contrast to what we're seeing today with the 13% plus gain uh, that Greg Jarrett mentioned. You know, the other side of the coin is what's going on with the financial companies. You know, in general, the fourth quarter results just haven't been well received. I mean, sure, you got Morgan Stanley shares higher in the wake of their results. They're only up 1%, though. And the two worst performers in the S&P 500 are companies that also reported fourth quarter results today. Bank of New York Mellon, which is down 6%, and U.S. Bank Corp down 4.4%. So, you know, and that's consistent with what we saw on Friday, uh, the reaction to the out of Citigroup and J.P. Morgan Chase and Wells Fargo, you know, you put that all together and, you know, it kind of shows you that as, as good as the results might be, if you look at them relative to analyst estimates, they're really not going over all that well in terms of the market reaction. So that's going to be something to watch as we go through. You know, is it going to be more of a Netflix kind of a, a response to results or is it going to be more in line with what we're seeing with the banks? Beyond that, Dave, there's a monumental shift happening in Washington, D.C. and in the country today in terms of leadership and what that means for policy going forward. But today is the day for pomp and circumstance. So what is volume like? Well, you look at what's going on. Uh, let me just check out the first half hour of trading in stocks listed on uh, either the New York Stock Exchange or NASDAQ. We saw about 2.6 billion shares change hands. And just to provide some context to that, you go back and look at yesterday, just you know, for a point of reference, and it's actually just a little bit above what we saw a week ago. So, you know, it, it, trading carries on, basically. And, and with the earnings reports coming out and, and all the rest, I mean, it's not exactly a surprise. Mm -hmm. One interesting name, guys, I thought was really interesting today, Alibaba. The stock mm -hmm. is up 5%, and I guess Jack Ma is alive and well, and that's, a, I guess, a reprieve 
for shareholders in this company, Dave? Well, it is because it's the first time he's really kind of been seen in public in about three months, you know, ever since uh, China's government started clamping down on him, you know, in the wake of, uh, you know, Ant Financial, the uh, uh, consumer finance company in which uh, Alibaba has a controlling stake, you know, planned to go public. It would have been the biggest uh, initial public offering ever worldwide, and the Chinese government didn't let that happen. And since, you know, Jack Ma has kind of been keeping a low profile, I mean, there was real concern about, you know, well, where is he? And uh, he (laughs) showed up in in a live stream video uh, for this event that he sponsors honoring rural teachers so at least people have some reassurance that he's still around and then from there it's a matter of you know what does uh, Alibaba look like going forward which is a, a you know a much bigger question you know given uh, you know the, the, the back and forth in, in terms of, of how uh, companies are being perceived I mean Alibaba kind of dodged a bullet last week because there was talk uh, that the company might uh, be kind of taken off the list of potential investments for, yeah. for U.S. investors with a blacklist, uh, but that didn't happen. So, you know, Alibaba's got the all clear for the moment, and having Jack Ma being seen in public uh, sort of goes along with that. We're expecting a minimum of 15 executive orders likely to be signed in the 5 o'clock hour or thereabouts. Things like, you know, reversing the U.S. withdrawal from the Paris Climate Accord and the WHO also, though, things like revoking a permit for the Keystone XL pipeline, Dave, are any stocks moving on the idea that we're going to be reversing some of what Donald Trump had put in place? Well, I'm not seeing a whole lot of reaction in TC Energy, and that's the uh, Canadian company that owns TransCanada Pipelines, and uh, they would be directly affected by that uh, order, assuming it's coming on Keystone XL. Uh, shares are only down half a percent in U.S. trading, though, and, and they've kind of been you know, a little changed the last couple of days as the prospect of this executive order has come up. I suppose you could argue that uh, yeah, it, it's something that people have been anticipating because, uh, you know, President-elect Biden had uh, pledged uh, to revoke the permit. So now it's just a matter of following through. Uh, so, you know, we'll see how things uh, unfold from here. You know what's interesting today, a stock that kind of caught my eye, hitting a 52-week high, General Motors. The stock is up 57% on a trailing 12-month basis, 33% on a year-to-date basis. And Bloomberg's got a nice article on the terminal today about how Mary Barra may be getting some of that Tesla kind of halo effect as they move into electric vehicles and autonomous vehicles. Uh, GM, heck of a move. Yeah, it's all about this uh, unit called Cruise. I mean, GM has a majority stake. You know, yesterday we found out there was a $2 billion round of fundraising uh, with Microsoft leading the way along with GM. It certainly uh, gets your attention. And uh, the story you noted, Paul, um, highlights, you know, sort of the back and forth on Twitter between uh, GM CEO Mary Barra and Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella about this deal. So, you know, to kind of have the imprimatur of Microsoft on your business, yeah, eh, I mean, that definitely gets people's attention. You know, it's interesting, but, you know, we've always talked about that. You know, when are the big global automakers going to make the move into electric vehicles, if for no other reason 
than to get some of the valuation bump that maybe they could from someone like, you know, like the, that Tesla enjoys for so long. And maybe we're starting to see a little bit of movement there uh, on some of these companies. Uh, Dave Wilson, thanks so much for joining us, Bloomberg Stock Center. We appreciate that. Uh, looking at the market again, a, a relatively good day here as we start the trading. We have the S&P up about just under 1% here. Uh, so we'll certainly keep an eye on that. And we'll have more inauguration coverage coming up in just moments. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.